Today on Radical Personal Finance, it's live Q&A. Welcome to Radical Personal Finance, the show dedicated to providing you with the knowledge, skills, insight, and encouragement you need to live a rich and meaningful life now while building a plan for financial freedom in 10 years or less. My name is Joshua, and I am your host. Today, live Q&A. I've been doing a special series of live Q&A shows this week, and we round out with our third one. Uh, this will be the last one for a little while that's open to the entire audience of the show. I usually restrict these Q&A calls to uh, patrons of the show, those of you who uh, find enough value in the show to financially support it. You can do that if you're interested in doing that at RadicalPersonalFinance.com slash patron, RadicalPersonalFinance.com slash patron. Thank you to the many of you who do support the show that way. But this week, I've been doing a special series of live Q&A shows. Super fun. Uh, we can give interesting questions with people that we don't usually get to talk to. So our first caller today is Karen in California. Karen, welcome to Radical Personal Finance. How can I serve you today, please? Thank you, Joshua. I'm calling because I'm trying to figure out for me and my husband what we should do next with our finances. Um, we're older, so I'm 46. He is uh, 49. But um, we've only been married about five and a half years. But when I married him, um, we had a lot of student loans from his end. And uh, I really had to organize the finances for us, and uh, we were able to get on track, and we actually paid it all off um, a couple months ago. It was a hundred and probably forty thousand dollars worth of student loans. Um, we both had a career change, and so that's how the, the student loans came about. But at this point, I'm trying to figure out with moving forward what we should do next is we should just really focus on the retirement um, or we should buy a home um, or maybe we can do part of like you know I know people have told me you can buy a home and that could be part of your retirement too so I'm really not sure what to do because um, the finances are limited but housing is very expensive here and we also need to retire at some point. What's your household income? Uh, right now, our household income is about 140. Do you expect that to continue at 140, or do you expect any dramatic increases or decreases? Um, it will probably stay about the same. There might be some increases increases coming up over the years. Um, the income actually increased significantly just last year um, because I changed jobs. So I think at this point, 140 is, is a good number, but then it might increase a little bit every year. Okay. And how much money do you guys have just in savings, non-retirement accounts, uh, just money that's available to you in bank accounts, things like that? Uh, we have 100. And how much money in retirement accounts, IRAs, Roth IRAs, that type of thing? Uh, it's 200. And do you have any other major assets, a home somewhere else, uh, any other major financial assets? Um, no. I actually had a condo in Georgia, but I sold it, and that's where the cash came from. Great. And do you owe any money to anybody for any reason? 
Um, no, we only have a car loan that's about six dollars. You broke up just a little bit. How much? Sixteen thousand. And how much is the car worth? Um, I don't know actually. Um, probably about the same. Okay. Well, conceptually, you're living in California. Why would you choose to buy a house in California? Well, because we're considering living here long term, and uh, the job market is very good for us. Do you want to own a house? <laughs> Not necessarily, but it seems like the right thing to do. Why? <laughs> uh, I don't know. It seems like if I don't own something, the rent continues to grow. And if we want to stay here, it only makes sense at some point to buy something. Have you gone shopping for uh, places to rent and or places to buy? Um, I've looked at what houses might be available to us to buy. Certainly um, with the the amount that I, the, the mortgage I'm looking at, it's limited, but possible in terms of housing that's available to buy. So if you did buy a house, how much of a, how much would it cost and how much would the house cost? Yeah. So I'm looking at all the houses. Most of it, most of the houses in the market is about a million dollars, but there are houses that are like, $600,000 or $700,000. So I'm looking at possibly if I can own something that's 500000 to 600000 that would be wonderful. And if how much to rent the place that you're living now, how much are you paying each month in rent? So right now, rent is pretty fair. It's about $1,800. Um, but that's only because we started rented it. We rented it about six years ago. So they can't really uh, increase it too much every year, but the landlord has been increasing it every month, I mean, every year by about $150 each year, a month. So I know at some point he might either try to kick us out or because rental market is about, for my apartment, probably about $2,500. Based upon where you're living now and the lifestyle associated with how you're living, are you and your husband happy? Yes. Based upon what you're describing, I don't see a whole lot of advantage to buying. Now, California real estate is, oh, okay. is very difficult. Let me just give you some things to think about because ultimately you're, you're going to have to make these decisions, obviously. But California yes. real estate is a unique animal. Uh, <sighs> Let's talk conceptually, generally first. Reasons to buy, reasons to rent. It's my conviction, uh, I'm convinced generally, that rentals are often going to be about the same financial results as owning a house, especially by the time you factor in uh, – especially by the time you factor in the care and the maintenance of a place to live uh, and, the, and et cetera. Many landlords underprice their property. Now, the problem is that has to be expressed locally and has to be looked at locally. Sometimes you'll find that rents are very high. Sometimes you'll find that rents are very low. What you're describing to me – 
without knowing the exact properties involved, if you can rent a place that you're happy with for $1,800 and the, or the alternative cost is to go and to buy a house that may cost you somewhere between $600,000 and a million dollars, if both of those bring you equal satisfaction in terms of lifestyle, no question, given that scenario, I would rent. Uh, because there's just such a dramatic difference in your flexibility. There's such a dramatic difference there. And it sounds like you have an under-market rent, which is helpful. If your landlord is increasing your rents uh, once a year, that's great. That's exactly what they should be doing. Uh, that's exactly how they should be reacting. After all, the value of property all around has been increasing in recent years. And that will, and it's only just and fair that the landlord should be able to increase your rents steadily. So you should keep an eye on the rent market locally for equivalent housing units and see, am I getting a fair rent? But sounds like you have an under market rent. If you're happy with that, there's no way in the world that you could own a house where the, where the pure cost, ignoring any kind of investment options, there's no way in the world you could own a house with a $600,000 to a $1 million price tag and have the pure cost of your taxes and your insurance and your just simple costs of acquisition, et cetera, that would be anything less than $1,800 a month. You would not be building equity just because you went on and took on a $2,500 or $3,000 a month mortgage payment. Your pure cost will be more than your rental expense. Now, there may be a lifestyle difference. For example, I don't know if those prices that you're quoting are related to the same kind of place that you're living now. What happens often is when people move, and especially when people buy, they often tend to buy more house than they would otherwise rent. That's why I asked you the question about lifestyle satisfaction. Given what you've described to me, sounds like rental is just probably conceptually better. It gives you more freedom, gives you more flexibility, and it's going to have a lower net cost for you at this point in time. Now, with regard to California real estate, um, you could make an argument and say, well, we're going to be here for the very, very long term. The local job market is good to us in our careers. We're going to be here for the very long term. I don't know enough about your local area to be confident in giving any kind of real estate advice. California real estate seems and feels to me, living on the other side of the country, like it's a very uh, heady market right now. Now, it's hard because real estate prices are supported by jobs, and there are pockets in the California marketplace where there are very high incomes and there are very high wages, and those very high incomes and very high wages push up real estate prices. And those little pockets where high-income earners live tend to have high real estate appreciation. Now, will that continue? I don't know, and it's impossible for me to know, but you would have to very carefully assess that. In general, I'm personally, from observation on the other side of the country, I would be pretty nervous about owning California real estate at this point in time based upon what I can see, not being a local. So you would have to assess that. Now, let's talk conceptually because of the basic question you asked of retirement versus real estate. Whatever you choose to do, you should probably focus on retirement. And saving and investing for retirement. Even if you do choose to buy a place to live, if I woke up in your shoes, I would probably put the minimal amount of money down on that property and I would focus on accumulating more investment assets at this point in time. I wouldn't use a lot of money and I wouldn't use a lot of income to buy real estate. And I think that you should be very careful to not change the 
uh, asset allocation of your portfolio to be very heavy in real estate. Um, realistically speaking, sounds like these career changes have been good for you. But at this point in time, you don't have a ton of money compared to the amount of money that you're earning. So these new earnings, you need to take some time and have them build up. You have $100,000 in cash. Uh, that's probably a very decent um, amount to keep in cash. Uh, I wouldn't be concerned about having fifty to seventy thousand uh, dollars as my emergency fund if I were living in California uh, in your situation, and I wouldn't be upset about having keeping that other money around in case I did want to uh, buy something, uh, adjust something, move somewhere, etc. Uh, so to me, having a hundred thousand dollars of cash feels pretty good. Uh, now, having two hundred thousand dollars in retirement accounts means that you have some exposure to investment assets. If you were to go and to purchase a six hundred thousand or a million dollar property. Let's say that you were to put 10% down on that property. You'll start to be heavily weighted towards real estate. And I think this is a danger for you because the thing that would, would affect California real estate prices would be a change in employment. If there were a change in wages, change in the economy that affect change in wages, stock bonuses went down, that would have an impact in time on the local California real estate market, would cause it to decline. And that change in wages could affect you and your husband and your your income and also affect your real estate. This is one of the reasons why it's unwise for people to put so much money into their own personal real estate. People are often so heavily weighted in personal real estate. So for all these reasons, I like the idea of you're building up a bigger investment portfolio. I like the idea of you're having more diversity. And if you can live happily and rent for $1,800 a month in a market where you would need to pay $600,000 to a million dollars to buy a place to live, I think I would Personally, I'd I'd be renting very happily. Okay, so if let's say the concern I have is that the rental market or the rent that I'm paying may change very quickly, if it goes up significantly, would your thinking be be different? You're asking a question about the future that is unknowable. Okay. So here would be your that is a concern. And that is one of the challenges of being a tenant. It is possible that your landlord will adjust your rents relatively quickly. Now, what do you, what protection do you have from that? Well, number one, you have a lease, I would guess, of some kind that probably can reset on an annual basis. Number two, you have the local market and your landlord wants to be competitive in the local market. And so there's going to be some reason why the local rental market is changing. Your landlord can't all of a sudden say, I'm going to double your rent from $1,800 a month to $3,600 a month and uh, everything around costs $2,000 a month. You would move out and you'd find a different place. So the only reason your landlord is adjusting the rent is going to be because in the local base and local area, the rents are uh, in, are uh, are changing. And in what you described to me, if you've been somewhere for quite a while, and if you are a good tenant, most landlords I think would be ha- are happier to have a good tenant who pays reliably, doesn't cause a lot of problems, and they're happy to take a little bit of an undermarket rent. So I, I, I'm just not that concerned about your rent going from $1,800 a month to $2,000 a month uh, next year. That's not going to make a big difference. Now, you have the exact same risk if you flip it around and say, well, if we buy a house, and here would be the example, because now we have the risk of housing prices changing. If you buy a house that costs, uh, if you buy a house that costs 
costs $800,000. And there's just a minor 10% correction in the cost of housing. That's $80,000 of value that you could lose if you purchased a house and there were a decrease. Now, of course, it could go the other way. You could have an eight, a 10% increase in the value of housing. But it's not unusual to have a 10% swing in the price of houses. So there's risk either way. And if you think about it and you compare the risk of having a house that's $800,000, having a 10% correction in the real estate market, uh, which is going to cost you $80,000 of value, if you take $80,000 out, uh, you would have to have a major uh, – well, let's talk uh, – at Let's do it this way. At $1,800 a month, if you had an $80,000 decrease in the value of your home, 80000 divided by 1800 that would be the equivalent of 44 months or four years of rent, uh, of, to- of your total rent. So your risk, your personal financial risk as a tenant in this case is much, much lower than your personal financial risk as a homeowner. Okay, that makes sense. I guess I was uh, thinking how housing is so limited. So, you know, housing for sale, so buying the home is a good investment because it may just increase significantly um, and rent is increasing so significantly maybe so that maybe it makes sense to buy. But now I have more to think about so go back in the early archives of Radical Personal Finance, and I did some shows on real estate, how to do a rent versus buy analysis. In your case, I would do one very simple analysis. You take a property that you would be interested in buying. Uh, you find an actual property that's listed. Calculate what you would need to do to get a mortgage for it, how much money you would need to put down. Calculate what type of mortgage rate you would be uh, eligible for. Calculate the cost of taxes and the cost of insurance. And I'd wager with you that when you do that, I bet you will find that the pure cost of that home And by cost, I mean the cost of your annual real estate taxes, the cost of your annual insurance coverage, and any other pure costs – sorry, the cost of interest on your mortgage. Those three costs, I would bet that those three costs are in excess of uh, what you're paying in rent by a substantial margin. Now, you go run the math, and if you find that it's very different than that, uh, go ahead. You might find otherwise. But to me, I would say that those uh, pure costs are going to be uh, very, very substantial to you. So do the math on your specific situation, but based upon what you're describing, if I woke up in your shoes, I think I would rent. Dean in Alabama, welcome to Radical Personal Finance, sir. Well, thank you, Joshua. It is uh, great to be able to talk to you, and I want to say thanks because you do take a different spin on personal finance than most of the other shows do. So I guess that's why it's called Radical. (laughs) My pleasure. I hope that it's actually a useful spin. (laughs) How can I serve you today, sir? Yeah, great, great, great. Well, my question is about the donor advised funds. I'm wanting to use one to front load my future uh, charitable contributions. Okay. And the reason I'm thinking about doing that is I want to put a large sum in there. When I say large, it's large for me, you know, seventy five, eighty thousand dollars Right. And uh, my goal has always been to try to stay in the 15% tax bracket, okay. which gives me plenty, plenty, plenty of money to spend. But I will never see any uh, uh, tax deductions because I don't. it's hard to make it past the standard deduction. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so I thought if I front-loaded, took the deduction this year, which would be large, then then I would have 
a fund to pull from to make charitable contributions and keep my standard deduction kind of a way of making more cash flow. Do you have a high income year this year or do you have another uh, – uh, uh, is there a is there something that you can foresee that would push you into a high income when that would be particularly helpful to you to make this – do this plan? Well, if the way my income sits this year and will be probably for the foreseeable near future is going to be about $73,000 for the year. And so that's really I was I was thinking that if I front loaded it would say seventy five or eighty thousand dollars, keep me under the uh when I make the big deduction for the charitable contribution that still keep me in a fifteen percent tax bracket. Right. And and then like I say, and then between my pension and my wife's social security, I am retired. Uh my wife's social security and some disability income she has coming in. We really have plenty to cover all the bills. I have no debt. Uh, I'm like I say, I'm retired. Most all of my money is in 401ks and IRAs. So everything that comes out has got to be taxed anyway. And so my goal is to try to pull out and stay in the 15% tax bracket. Yeah. I like it. And, and, do you have a local, and, uh, do you have a local I, community foundation or, or a sponsor of the, uh, the funds that would be appropriate for your personal uh, well, charitable goals? It, well, it would mostly be just uh, church donations. Okay. And it's mostly that's what I'm thinking of is my tie is even paying 10 percent on, you know, ninety six thousand dollars. If you stay in the 15 percent uh, tax bracket, I still never hit the standard deductions. Right. right. It's, all, it's almost like it's uh, you, you paying out the money, but you're not getting the deduction. So if I front load <laughs> it, then I can pull it out of the donor advised fund, pay my tie. And I still have the uh, standard deduction to, to meet up to So. I haven't like been able to find anybody else to tell me whether it makes sense or not. It makes sense in my mind. Yeah, <laughs> so. yeah the biggest thing is just simply finding uh, a local foundation, a local charitable foundation that will run the fund properly uh, and then making sure that the fund will get through to the charitable organization uh, from that donor-advised fund. So, well, that, Would you not be able to use uh, Fidelity or Vanguard as, a, as the donor-advised funds to do this through? I'm not sure. I don't see any reason why you couldn't. Um, I don't know what uh, – I don't know of any reason why it wouldn't work. Um, I'm not aware of any reason why it wouldn't work. Um, administratively – that would be the question, next question I would ask because I would call whoever you're planning to use as your um, coordinator for the donor advised fund and make sure that uh, a public – make sure that the charity that you are working with would be an approved, uh, an approved charity. Um, yes. I don't know. Yes. It's a good idea. I've never done it and I've never done it with a client and I can't see any conceptual reason why it wouldn't work. Um, based upon my knowledge, but I would have to actually follow through and and work through and see can I actually administratively do it? That's the best I can do for you. That's that, and I it's a, it's a I haven't been able to find the answer from anyone else either because they say the same thing. No one's done it. They didn't know anyone that's done it. And my I've always the pushed back with well you can get a tax deduction anyway, but you can't get a tax deduction unless you go over twelve thousand seven hundred dollars filing jointly. Right. Right. <laughs> I would sit down uh, the church that so you want all the money to go to your local church is that right? More than likely, yes. Is this local you know, church? Do it in like a monthly, okay. a monthly or quarterly basis. You know, so is this local church a large church or a small church? Uh, I'm going to say a medium church. When I question our financial people on using donor advised funds, they don't have the knowledge. They don't understand them. Right. Because they, they give you that questionable look like a what now? <laughs> so. 
Is there a, an insurance agent uh, or a financial advisor or an estate attorney that you know of in the church? You know what? Not that I know of. Not that I know of. I have not heard of anyone that's that's down them lines. So okay. So you know, just like you say, even if you used to leave, if I was to move and go to another church, then I still have my funds that I could pull from to you know to make my contributions then. So. Is it important? I'm just to, looking at it as a front load, just what right. I'm looking at it as. I'm going to pay a tithe regardless. So right, right. I just want to get the best tax deduction possible. Right. I would sit down. And you don't ever know what the tax code's going to change. We might not even be able to do that this year. You never know. I know you got to show on that one, too. So. Right. <laughs> well, you never predicting know that. from one year to the next what it's going to be. I think for any of us, predicting the tax code is uh, is the definition of impossibility. I would have to be really certain of a uh, of a direct divine revelation to make any comments of a tax code, and I probably wouldn't even then declare it out of out of fear of being completely wrong. Uh, but I, I, you know, it's, it's hard. It's just like I've worked uh, many years. I'm just a factory worker, and I've saved and. In the 401k, saved in my IRAs, uh, deprived myself along the way so that I can hit this retirement years and, you know, and be able to enjoy them. So I want to be able to get that money out, uh, you know, and keep it as well, pay as few taxes on it as I can and right. still be able to travel and do things. So. Right. And it's really frustrating to have the uh, um, the government leeches come in and pull off 10 or 15 percent of, uh, of the money. So here practically yeah, yeah. is what I think you need to do. Number one, uh, I think you need to go and speak to somebody in your local church uh, who has a broad, has a complete connection. If you're in a medium-sized church, there may be somebody there in the church that you don't know that would be a professional expert in this area. Uh, and so go and ask um, somebody on your pastoral team, go and ask somebody who's connected in the church and just say, do we have any insurance agents? Uh, do we have any financial advisors? Or do we have any tax or estate attorneys or accountants in our church? It's hard for me to imagine a medium-sized church body that doesn't have at least somebody from one of those areas. Now, with that local professional, uh, it would be good to start and uh, and ask, uh, you know, hey, here's what I'm thinking, and try to get a referral to a local uh, estate planning uh, attorney or a local estate expert. Another way to approach it would be to go to your local community foundation. Find a community foundation near you uh, and go to your local community foundation. Call them up and ask to sit down with one of their planners and describe to them what you're trying to accomplish and describe to them um, what your financial goals are, what your financial assets are, and what your financial uh, uh, intentions are. It it's worth it to sit down with a competent estate planner in this context and make sure that this is the best plan. What I have found doing this type of work in the past is frequently uh, people will neglect an asset or neglect something that is uh, potentially very useful. For example, they might have uh, an appreciated stock or an appreciated piece of real estate. Uh, and sometimes you can use that charitably to generate a very high tax deduction while uh, while it not actually costing you all that much out of pocket. And so my biggest fear is that, you just all, that you're thinking on a cash basis when in reality you might have an asset that would be more 
uh, useful for you and have a higher utility in this context. In the church world, you'll be able to find somebody locally. Uh, you'll be able to find somebody who works in this area. You can do this on the phone. You can talk with them, tell them about your financial situation, and you'll be able to find somebody who will work with you. There are teams of people who um, give specific advice in this area, and the goal is to figure out how to get uh, money into the church and into the uh, into the local church community in the most efficient way. And I think you can find somebody in your local area who can over, who can look this over with you and make sure that this is the best way for you to approach it. And then finally, administratively, I would reach out to um, the potential sponsor that you have and talk to one of their advisor. Every company who would offer this kind of service will have a team of advisors who will talk through this with you. If you want to go to Fidelity or you want to go to Vanguard and you want to talk to them, they'll put you on the phone with a charitable uh, advisor and um, uh, they'll put you on the phone with one of their teams and they'll talk this through with you. They have the expertise. And then finally, if none of those plans work, uh, reach out, do a little bit of research in your local community and find an insurance agent uh, from one of the big old insurance companies. And here's the secret to uh, to that scenario. That particular insurance agent may not have specialized knowledge in estate planning. But because insurance agents like to sell great big insurance policies, they know that they need experts. <laughs> and so what the most of the insurance companies have is they have teams of what are called advanced planning attorneys. And these attorneys are real experts in their industry, but they're paid by the insurance company. And you can use this as a way of your getting good, competent, free advice um, through the your relationship with the insurance agent. Uh, and they'll look at the different options. They'll talk through the different options with you, and they'll make sure that you're getting uh, a good, uh, a good, not good, useful um, scenario. I used to do this all the time. Uh, I had access to my advanced planning attorneys. I have friends that were with other companies. They would have access to their advanced planning attorneys, and it's a good way to get. Uh, uh, a specialized estate planning attorney on the phone without your having to stroke the check for you know the hourly fee. Uh, they'll sit with you, they'll talk it through with you, and they'll see if they can suggest any ideas that will help you uh, better. So those are the those are the the action steps that I would take, Dean. Yeah, that sounds fantastic. You know, in my research and doing all this, everything that you touched on right there is I have come across that in all the research, and my hardest part is. It's like appreciated assets. I don't have any appreciated. All my money is in this 401k and these IRAs. And it, it limits you. It, it limits you on how you can use them funds. You can have a million dollars in there, but it sure does limit you on how you can get it out and use them funds. Right. Uh, just like you were saying before, I was not, uh, I didn't put enough money in taxable accounts mm -hmm. or buy something uh, or stocks or whatever, that, something that would appreciate up that you could use in a tax advantage like that. All I've got is an income and my and my <laughs> my four hundred one ks and IRAs and that's it. So. Have you looked through in your situation the um, IRA four hundred one k charitable contribution directly out of the four hundred one k? Oh, out of a four hundred one k? No, I have not. I did not know that you could do that straight out of a four hundred one k. Not unless you were seventy and a half. So you can make. Um, I'm not current enough to walk you through this in a live 
format. Uh, I've gotten <laughs> yeah. rusty on this topic in the last couple of years, and I'm just not current enough to walk you through the details in a live format. Do a web search. Uh, pull up DuckDuckGo and do a I web will. search for uh, 401k charitable contributions and read through that. Um, this was a big opportunity uh, about three, four, four years ago, five years ago, something like that. This was a big opportunity when the tax law changed um, about four or five opportunities to do direct contributions of retirement assets directly to the charity. Uh, and so uh, you would need to just just pull it up, look at it, read it, pull, find the IRS uh, find the IRS website uh, appropriate uh, publication on this, and look to see what the current rules are on making charitable contributions directly from your retirement funds. Uh, and the benefit is it may be um, it may be a way for you to get money out of the four hundred one k and get it directly to the charity while uh, doing it in a very efficient way with minimum fees. So again, just do do some searching and do some additional research on charitable contributions directly out of a retirement account, and hopefully that'll help you. Eddie in Virginia, welcome to Radical Personal Finance. How can I serve you today, please? Hey, Joshua. Um, I'm calling. I just want to get some uh, co- uh, career advice on you. I'm contemplating a move out of my current industry. Um, Currently, I'm a commission-based employee, 100%, and uh, in an industry that goes up and down pretty often. And I'm thinking of making a move, but I'd take a pretty significant pay cut. It wouldn't change my lifestyle drastically because my wife and I don't spend a lot of money, but um, it would definitely change some of our plans. And I just wanted to see what sort of advice you had. Well, if you're going to make less money, why would you make the move? What, what What's in it for you? Stability. Stability, it's you a said? Salary. Yes, stability, okay. salary position, typically. Has living on a on an unknown uh, up-and-down income, has that been hard for you? Yes. Yeah, because it's – you've talked about this before. Some months you make $20,000 and some months you make zero. Um, not that budgeting's hard, but it's just very difficult to game plan uh, where it is. And my organization has been uh, – not as great on delivering products in a timely manner uh, outside of my control. So, so in the last year, how, mu- how much have you made in the last year in your commission-based job? Um, I will approximately make about 100000 And if you go to the salary-based job, how much do you think you'll make in the next year? About eighty to eighty-five. In your commission-based job, have you – exhausted all of your opportunities to dramatically increase your income under your current commission structure? Yes. In your salary-based yes. job, will there be opportunities for substantial increases in your income? I believe so. If I move up into a higher-level management position, yes. Well, that to me is the biggest concern uh, because – Yes, commissions can be stressful, and I think here you have to ask the question: What's the uh, what's the cost uh, for you? What's the cost for your wife? What's the cost on your family? There are there are different levels of stress that you may or may not find uh, helpful and find uh, find difficult. I mean, an example: In my situation, I've lived on a highly fluctuating, highly variable income since two thousand and eight, and it's been hard. 
very hard at times, but I've learned I've learned this increasing skills to deal with it. I still have a long way to learn, I'm sure, but I've learned increasing skills to deal with it, and I've been able to make steps in order to put enough of a financial buffer that is not so painful as it once was. Um, there were times where early in earlier in life it was quite painful, uh, but I've learned, and it's not particularly painful to me uh, at this point in time. And in integrating with my wife, there were times during our uh, our joint management of finances early in our marriage where it was painful, but my wife never uh, – it was never an emotional problem for her. She was never emotionally connected to uh, the challenge of having low-income months and high-income months. So it was never all that stressful for her. Thus, it was never all that stressful in our marriage. I've worked and counseled other couples who were in similar industries and experienced similar fluctuations of income. And in their situation, for differing reasons, their, their experience of the stress of fluctuating income was very, very different. Um, and specifically, uh, I know of one couple that I was uh, engaged in in personal financial counseling where for them to go from – a fluctuating income to a fixed income, even though there was a slight pay cut, was a tremendous blessing for them in their family and their overall emotional makeup, especially for the emotional stability of the wife. And so I think that you should analyze that separate from financial increase. And that and, and that's not a that's not a factor to be discounted. Uh, it's something that's important. Now, on the flip side, you should look and say, well, if I do make this switch, how much is it going to cost me? And then how much am I giving up on the upside? If you've maximized all your opportunities and you're maxed out at about $100,000, then that doesn't sound too exciting to me, no matter whether you're commission or salary. If this other job is a better fit for you, and you can move to a salary position at 80000 but maybe a year and a half from now, you can make a jump in the levels of the company uh, and go from eighty to one hundred and twenty. That sounds probably more exciting than the fact that you're maxed out on commission at hundred grand with your current business structure. So the fact that there's not a big possible increase on the commission basis to me just doesn't sound that exciting. And for those reasons, um, I think I probably would. I'd probably take the temporary pay cut, move to the stable income. That'll be helpful and then focus on what do I need to do to bump up uh, in the level of the compensation tier here uh, or to move into the bonus program here, even though it's not directly tied to commissions. Okay. Awesome. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. Did we miss anything? Are there any other extenuating factors or is that good enough? Um, no. I mean, that's really what it came down to. My current position is um, odd hours as well. So that's putting some stress there. Um, in addition <laughs> to that, and the, the other position is going to be more of a nine to five. So that those were factors that I'd already kind of ruled what I'm willing to do, but I wanted to get your opinion on it. So I really uh, appreciate your podcast. It's hard to say it, it, the odd hours are a big, actually a big benefit. And so is just simple stability. Uh, you know, I think most of us who work in these commission based or fluctuating income scenarios, I think most of us regularly look at and say, you know what, maybe I should go get a job. It's funny. I, I was I was talking about this with a friend of mine who is also an entrepreneur and we were talking about the challenges of just simply trying to build a business starting with nothing with young children. And our comment to, um, together both him and me, uh, and we're motivated, goal-oriented people, was we underestimated 
how difficult it was to build a business uh, that would work when uh, also trying to do a good job with young children. And uh, and many times I think you look around and, and uh, as much as I love entrepreneurship and business, et cetera, I think there is a lot of benefit in simply having a job that is um, steady, that provides a steady income. It helps with planning and, and provides a good structure, uh, and I think that can work really good benefits. Travis in Kentucky, welcome to Radical Personal Finance. How can I help you, sir? Hello, Joshua. I appreciate you taking the call and appreciate all that you do on the podcast. We, I really enjoy it. Um, my wife and I uh, were recently blessed to welcome our new daughter into the family. Um, so we now have a four-year-old and a two-week-old, and we're looking to add um, some coverage to our life insurance. Uh, I currently have a million dollars worth of term life insurance coverage, and my wife doesn't have anything currently. Um, and I was exploring the options between just adding term life, um, some more coverage for both myself and for her, but also weighing that against the idea of maybe doing something like a joint uh, universal life coverage. Um, and I guess I've heard you talk about it extensively in recent podcasts um, and heard you talk about how it can be such a valuable tool, you know, in different circumstances and that you have policies in your family. Um, and I guess as I run through some of the scenarios doing my math, it's hard for me to overcome the idea of buy term and invest the rest. Um, most of the calculations I do, that seems to be the most beneficial um, way to go. Um, but I guess before I you know, went ahead and made a decision, I was wanting to pick your brain about um, some other things I may not be considering. What's your household income? Uh, 150000 Okay. Um, so there's two levels of analysis. First, what makes me nervous is you talked about a joint policy. Why were you considering purchasing a joint life policy? Well, I guess the idea was is the reason that we were wanting to buy the insurance um, was not so much for the end, you know, hopefully we live to be the ripe old age and, you know, dying at 85, 90, 95, whatever, and then having a death benefit come to us. That's not really the idea of why I want to buy the coverage. It's more of if one of us dies prematurely, you know, I want to be able to have some money to cover, you know, the basically the services that she provides to the family. Of course. Um, and of course, vice versa for me. Um, so I guess the idea of maybe doing a joint policy was you kill two birds with one stone and, you know, I'm covered if I die quicker or if she's covered or, you know, vice versa. I'm covered if she dies quicker, she's covered if I die quicker. Um, you know, that it might not be that there's any benefit, you know, maybe a whole life on me and a whole life on her, you know, maybe that's something to explore as well. Um, and I guess that's, but still I always run into the idea that, you know, the term is cheaper. And if I take the difference between what I would be putting in a whole life policy and just am responsible and invest that, you know, reasonably well, um, the time horizon that you're talking about with, you know, holding a whole life policy, if you let your capital accumulate, you know, in a mutual fund or, you know, you know, well-diversified investment account, uh, at the end of the day, I keep coming back to the idea, well, I'm better off just doing that. Um, and so I guess I'm wondering, is there an aspect that maybe I should be considering um, before I just go ahead and say, yes, that's what I should do? Um, and the reason why I guess I'm a little bit nervous is I, I listen to you talk and I foresee 
and maybe project some of the things that you're probably doing with your personal finances. And I'm wondering why you're arriving at the idea that, yeah, whole life policy is better for me. Um, Cause I'd imagine we're probably similar with the way that we approach, um, you know, these, these types of problems. So I want to, if, that, if yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. The error that you're making is the either or, uh, discussion, and that's usually the error when it comes to the buy term invest the difference discussion. Is we're not is is you're you're saying I should either do this or I should do that. So hold on one second. We'll get to whole life insurance in just a moment. First, the joint life discussion. Um, I assume that you were talking about a joint life first to die policy. Uh, is that right, or were you t- were you talking about a Correct. second to die policy? Okay. All right. I don't like Correct. this, and I don't think there's any benefit to your buying a joint life first to die policy. Uh, for the sake of other listeners, you can purchase a life insurance policy that is is it is uh, underwritten on the life of two people, uh, and there are two ways that it can be done. The first way it can be done. So in this situ- in this particular situation, it would be underwritten on the life of Travis and on Travis's wife. Travis, how old are you? How old your wife? I'm 33, and she is 32. Okay. So and the idea here is. Um, Whenever one of them dies, then the policy would pay out a certain sum of money and uh, uh, then – and hopefully the idea is because it's on two two lives, it's a little bit cheaper than it would be on one or the other. Uh, I don't like it. I don't think that um, – and this these are guesses. You could disprove this with your actual numbers from some insurance companies. So I'm giving you a gut feeling based upon experience, not a, uh, a mathematically calculated provable thing where I just ran um, policies on you. Joint life first to die policies are very rare. And so I don't think the market is competitive. I think if you buy a joint life first to die policy, you're going to wind up paying more per per thousand dollars of insurance than you will with a term life policy. Term life policies are so competitive. The prices are in the floor. And so I don't think you're going to get as much of a benefit. Number two, I don't think you're going to get the coverage that you should get. If if my wife dies, then – my then I need money in order for me to be able to care for our children in the way that we want our children to be cared for. I couldn't do that if she were dead, if she didn't have life insurance. But now I still face the, the risk of, well, what about me if I die? And the money that I would need to care for my children is not the same amount of money as my children would need if both of us were dead. And so I think I'm much happier with the plan to – uh, I'm much happier with the plan to put in place uh, uh, policies on both of us so that if she dies, then I receive money. If I die, she receives money. And if we both die, then our children receive the sum total of all of the money. So I don't like the structure of the I joint see. life. Also, there are I concerns see. with regard to ownership. Who's going to own the policy? How is the policy going to be owned? And there are concerns for you, for your wife, and for your children to protect you in case of divorce. What happens if you were to divorce? Um, what happens to the policy? And how do we make sure that the insurance stays in force? So as a financial planner, I, I just I don't like the joint life first to die. That's different. That's very different than joint life second to die when we're using that at a later stage. But for you as a young family, I don't see any compelling benefit to pursuing a joint life first to die policy. Make sense? Okay. 
Okay. Yep, it does. Now, second, we're talking about term life insurance versus universal life insurance. This is a blanket statement, but this is kind of my opinion based upon experience. I don't like universal life insurance for unsophisticated people. Universal life insurance has its place and it's a useful tool, but I don't like universal life insurance for unsophisticated people. And and unsophisticated is not an insult. But it's a level of understanding of how insurance works. Universal life insurance is the most complicated form of insurance, and it can be a useful tool because of the flexibility. It can be a useful tool in the hands of a competent financial planner or in the case of a sophisticated insurance buyer. But many people buy it, and they don't understand how it works. So universal life insurance is often underfunded, and it often doesn't work long term. Now, it can be a way – of providing a family with uh, the equivalent in some cases of an extended term life insurance policy with options. But it's so complicated that it's very hard for me in my experience to believe that the average person with a basic working knowledge of insurance would be able to successfully buy one and get all the benefits of it. I much prefer the simplicity of term life insurance. The second problem with universal life insurance is what is it invested in? And if the policy is a variable universal life contract, which it frequently is, then all of a sudden now we have to factor on the risk factors of stock and equities markets and the risk factors of an insurance product, and it just becomes very complicated. It does have a place, but I don't like it for young couples who just need simple insurance planning. So I'm very nervous about you pursuing um, a universal life insurance contract as the basis for in any in any regard. I like the simplicity of term life insurance. With me so far? Okay. Okay. Yep. Now, um, you need a lot of term life insurance. And your wife needs a lot of term life insurance. Um, Chances are I don't know anything about your assets, but at your age, I don't see any reason for you not to have double or double and a half the amount of term life insurance coverage that you have. And I don't see any reason for for your wife not to have a million dollars of insurance coverage for her. Term life insurance is so cheap that there's a compelling benefit for you to have quite a bit of it. With $150,000 annual household income, um, it will make – the cost of premiums will make effectively no difference in your household um, versus the potential benefit of your having two or $3 million of coverage and your wife having a $1 million of coverage. You can go and you can do more careful calculations, et cetera, but we're talking about the cost of a pizza. Uh, for 32, 33-year-old healthy non-tobacco users, we're talking about the cost of a pizza a month, a couple pizzas a month, and you'll like to ha- you'll like having more, and it'll put more tools in your um, portfolio. The best thing for me about life insurance is that is that having millions of dollars of term life insurance allows me to guarantee my financial legacy for my children. It's one of the most powerful feelings you can you can get when you're young and you don't yet have all the money that you want to have. It is really rewarding to recognize the fact that if I'm dead, I can guarantee a significant estate for my children. And term life insurance is one of the most powerful financial tools that to, to do that. For you, as a 33-year-old male, healthy, non-tobacco user, you can have two to two and a half, three million dollars of life insurance for something like probably 75, 80 bucks a month, depending on the on the the structure. Once you have that, you'll find that that is a is very, very powerful in terms of psychologically, or at least I have found it to be that way. So don't look at anything 
Don't look at universal life insurance. Don't look at whole life insurance. Don't look at anything until you have properly established the the, the total amount of death benefit that you need with regard to um, you and your wife using term life insurance. Make sense? Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. Now, with whole life insurance, I would like you to have insurance policies on the, your children's lives small whole life insurance policies on your children's lives before you buy it for you. So if you are willing to spend a little bit more money on insurance and you properly squared away term life insurance for you and your wife and you can buy some small whole life policies for your children, I think that's a good idea. I own whole life insurance policies on all of my children, small ones, well-designed from a good company that will be an efficient accumulation of, of, of money over time. I've done shows on life insurance for children uh, in the past. Also, make sure that your disability insurance is squared away fully, that you have as much as you can get and that you're covered and make sure that your health insurance is squared away as well. Now, once health insurance, disability insurance, term life insurance are squared away, now we can have the whole life insurance question, the conversation. But it's not either or. Because there's no comparison between the two. It's not either you buy a million dollars of term life insurance or you buy $33,000 of whole life insurance. We always solve death benefit needs first and we always solve that with term life insurance. You don't solve death benefit needs with whole life insurance. Okay. Okay. Now, should you buy some whole life insurance? I don't know. Um, I, if, you, if the question is buy term and invest the difference, so uh, you have to recognize you can't buy term and invest the difference and get the equivalent of a whole life insurance policy. Whole life insurance is a unique product. If you're going to compare should I buy a whole life insurance because I'm already telling you, you should buy term. You should buy term. So now separate the question from either or and say, I'm considering buying a whole life insurance contract or I'm considering purchasing this other investment. Now compare them on the merits. And where the whole conversation breaks down is that if you're an aggressive investor and if equities markets continue to perform, in general, an equity market should outperform a traditional portfolio-based whole life insurance contract. And it should. Now, it doesn't always, and the returns come at varied times. It should outperform that. The basic functional benefit of whole life insurance that I appreciate is a few things. Number one, whole life insurance is a stable asset. Life insurance companies, well-run life insurance companies, and a traditional non-equity-based life insurance contract, is the, the value of the contract is guaranteed to go up. The amount at which it goes up changes, but it's guaranteed to go up. That gives me a stable pile of money. Second thing I like about it is if a policy is well-constructed and it's well-purchased, it can be fairly efficient. It can function and be fairly efficient. It's going to have higher costs than some other things because you have to deal with the cost of insurance, but it can be fairly efficient. It's also very flexible. And so unlike some other things, that I uh, can choose to invest and, and put money into. A whole life insurance contract can be flexible. I can put money in or take money out anytime I want. So I have a stable pile of money that can increase, that was guaranteed to increase at a varying rate, that will be very, very safe, and it, and it will function as a non-correlating asset to some of my other investments, and it's very, very flexible. I can get money in and out of it, and it's protected and exempt from the claims of creditors. 
That's helpful, just like the money in a 401k and IRA is. It's not the only asset, but it is protected and exempt from the claims of creditors. And it pays out a death benefit, which can be very, very useful. And that death benefit is paid out income tax-free. And it's an asset that I can pledge uh, as security for a loan. It's an asset that I can move into a trust. It's a very, very flexible asset. Where people make the mistake is trying to make it do everything. And I think that's a wrong approach. So I think it's worth – I don't have an insurance license. I don't sell um, whole life insurance anymore. But my generalized advice has often been to purchase um, – you always cover death benefit with term life insurance. And if you find benefits in the whole life insurance attributes and if you can develop a policy that's well-run, well-built, et cetera, then there is a place for you to put some money into it if it's useful to you. But that's as far as I would go. To me, that's a practical, actual, uh, um, realistic way to approach it. Um, most of the argument on the subject where it's all it's a matter of everything into whole life insurance or nothing into whole life insurance, it's of the devil, it's just a waste of money, those have not been true in my experience. And so what I've just described to you is about the only way um, that I can get at what seems to be true based upon my experience and my knowledge. Okay, so if I'm hearing you correctly, in essence, you're saying if the idea is to cover, you know, expenses or debt uh, due to the event of your death and you're looking for the death benefit, then you focus on your term life insurance. If you're looking for other ways to invest capital, look at a whole life insurance policy more like a bond proxy, an alternative to a bond or an alternative to another investment. Is that in essence, yeah, that is it has it might have the additional benefit of a death benefit should you die. Exactly, and and I don't underestimate okay. the value of that death benefit. One of the things that when I first got into the insurance business, I thought that as you got older, your need and your value of insurance of life insurance would go down. Um, the basic concept is that over time you should be able to self-insure. Um, and so you buy Correct. term life insurance when you're younger. Uh, over time, you're able to self-insure because you have more assets and you have fewer liabilities. You pay down your debts. Your children grow and move out of the house. And so you have fewer liabilities, um, to fewer responsibilities and fewer liabilities. And so you get to the point where you need less insurance and hopefully at some point you need no insurance. Now, that's not wrong. It does happen. It's obvious that it happens that your responsibilities change over time as your children grow and move out of the house. But my experience in working with actual clients was that very few people actually got to the self-insurance model because what tends to happen in the arc of finance and the cycle of many families was that uh, people didn't necessarily downsize from um, so much as they other dice did. They might have moved to a smaller house, but they often upgraded it to a luxury house. Or they often just found that they liked having the insurance. When I think about children and my wife, I feel a significant amount of responsibility to my wife to make sure that if I die, even if our children are grown and gone, that she is well supported. Now, I want to do that with assets. But as an example, my wife is not an income uh, earner in our household. She is at home full time and she's not an income earner. So as a husband, I owe her a duty of care that goes beyond 
the life of my children. I need to make sure that because she is not earning income, she doesn't have income where she's saving, I owe her a duty of care to make sure that if I die after our children are grown, that she's able to continue in our lifestyle without the need to uh, to go and to get a job, without the need to uh, uh, to go and, and, and move into poverty. And so what happens is there becomes value. There, there becomes a, comes a lot of value with the life insurance policy. And then finally, as an estate with the whole life insurance policy, the policy always being in force. And when you get them when you're young, the premiums disappear over time or they're so insignificant as to be well insignificant. And, and so they become a very useful asset. Um, then as a financial planner, I look at it and I, and I like the idea to be able to use life insurance as a way to equalize the estate. Um, I, it's I'm too early, young and you're too young to have any clue about paying estate taxes. But that's often been uh, a scenario where you have to cover and say, well, how do we pay these estate taxes? Life insurance is a particularly useful and flexible tool. It's not the only tool, but it's a particularly useful and flexible tool. So in, in the hands of a competent financial planner, uh, a life insurance policy is a very flexible asset. It's not doesn't work for everything. It's just a flexible asset that has value. And so that's about as far as I would go. Make sense? Okay. Yes, it does. One follow-up question sure. I would have with in terms to the children, how do you determine the amount of a whole life insurance policy to place on a child? Life insurance company will have a minimum amount that they'll cover. You may be able to cover a death benefit. I mean, not be remiss and say that you have to buy whole life insurance. You sometimes can cover a death benefit as a term life insurance rider, but this is usually only found in the context of employer-based life insurance. I haven't seen that frequently on individual-based life insurance. But if you have a job, you may be able to put um, a life insurance contract on your children through your group life insurance contract. Contract. The only contracts that you can buy in the open market that I'm aware of for children are going to be whole life insurance contracts. And the insurance company will have a minimum uh, policy size that they'll sell. It's often $25,000. Sometimes it's $15,000. Sometimes it uh, varies, but often it's something like $25,000. Uh, and so what I often uh, encourage clients to do is to put the minimum policy, a $25,000 policy on each of their children uh, and to put that on there with what's called an additional purchase benefit. To me, the biggest benefits of a life insurance policy for children is yes, to have some insurance coverage in case they die, but that's not my big thing. I've always appreciated having uh, what's called an additional purchase benefit, which guarantees their ability to buy additional insurance in the future. Now, it adds a cost, and, right. it, and it means that uh, uh, from the perspective of an investment calculation, um, just pure cash accumulation, that a child's policy doesn't uh, it does it's not as efficient as others because there's a higher cost of insurance when you add an additional purchase benefit or a waiver of premium benefit onto it it changes the efficiency of the contract those are pure insurance benefits thus they add additional cost and so uh, my children's policies are not um, spectacular when measured by a rate of return perspective but they're very very useful when measured by an insurance perspective uh, and that's how I view them just simply as an insurance perspective and I um, I have them for all of my children. Uh, I sold a lot of them when I was an insurance agent. It just made sense from – I've always just felt like it makes sense. If you've got the financial – now, it's not appropriate for somebody who has no money. Uh, if somebody is, is is scraping to get by and it's not appropriate, people don't, don't have their own coverage squared away. That's why I talked about disability insurance for you. Life insurance for you and your wife. Make sure your health insurance is on track, et cetera. But if you can cover those things out of your income and there's still additional flexible money that can cover it, I, I find it compelling. 
Okay. And the the idea is they can always purchase more life insurance even if they're sick or have some disability. Is that what that rider is? Exactly. It's an additional purchase benefit. So, right. for example, for right. uh, with, with the policies that I own for my children, um, at each there are I think if memory is right there uh, are seven opportunities starting at the age of 20, between the ages of 20 and 40 every three years, wherein the insurance company will send them a letter and during a 90-day period, um, the child can exercise the additional purchase benefit option and they can just simply say, yes, I'd like to purchase an additional $150,000 of insurance. Now, the only downside is they're not – that doesn't apply to term life insurance. It's only whole life insurance that, that they can purchase. But at each of those times, they have the option guaranteed to be able to to purchase an additional $150,000 of life insurance. So what it means is that you can have a child who has a $25,000 policy and with that $25,000 policy, if they can buy an additional purchase option of $150,000 times seven, you wind up where they can purchase up to basically over a million dollars of life insurance without any medical exams, without any lifestyle questions means no hobby questions, no avocations, no 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 occupation questions. So those things that are often very very difficult for a client. Sometimes it's health stuff, but that's you know maybe it happens, maybe it doesn't. But but a lot of times maybe the child uh, is a beginning pilot, or they're learning to fly helicopters, or they're engaged in a risky occupation, or they're doing something like they're a race car driver. Well, you can't get insurance in those contexts, but with the additional purchase benefit, there's the option there for them to be able to get new new contracts. Now, I'm probably uh, – let me, let me not hedge that. I'm biased because of my experience as an insurance agent. What happens is is when I – I still don't like certain kinds of insurance. I'm still um, very kind of a cheap when it comes to buying insurance. I still I, I share that ethic of I don't like to buy insurance, that, that ethic that many of us have. But when you go into the insurance business, you start to see different situations and over the years, my appreciation – of insurance has substantially increased. And you're hearing that tone come through in my voice based upon experience, seeing how in so many situations having that um, that that insurance in force would be really, really valuable. It's hard to it's hard to talk about because the the chances are so remote. Yeah, I know I've never told the story on radical personal finance, but just as a as a way of example of showing how valuable an insurance contract can be. I was, uh, I had a, a client of mine in the past, and this client was probably not a great fit. For, they weren't a great fit for insurance because they had a highly fluctuating income, and they um, uh, they were entrepreneurs, and they were in an industry which, when I first met them, was in a really tough space, uh, and in the construction industry, and. When I first met them, I was a very novice uh, insurance agent and they were excited about buying insurance and as a novice insurance agent, I was impressed with the fact that they were excited and because they were excited about buying insurance, I was excited about selling them insurance and so I sold them life insurance policies on the whole family. Now, I did a good job, term life insurance, mom and dad, um, but I sold them – in addition to that, I sold them child policies on their children And, um, and I felt really good about it. But I underestimated because of my greenness, because of my novice uh, experience in the in the 
business. I underestimated their financial capacity to pay, and, and I had gotten over-exuberant in what I had sold them, and I underestimated their financial capacity to pay. A year later, I forget if it was less than a year. I forget if the policies technically lapsed or not. But basically, a year or something later, um, they couldn't keep up the payments, and so the the insurance went out of force. They la- It lapsed. And I felt very bad about that. As an insurance agent, one of the worst things that a client ca- that can happen for a client uh, is if they buy anything other than term life insurance, if they buy whole life insurance of any kind, and then the policy lapses, it winds up being very, very expensive in the short term uh, because there's so many costs at the inception of a contract that if they don't keep the contract, it winds up going out of force and it's very, very expensive. So the policy lapsed and I was, of course, disappointed, but you know, what could I do? Well, a few years later, they reached out to me again. Things were better at this point and um, uh, things were better and they were doing better. Their business was more stable. And so they said, we want to buy insurance again. We really liked having it, but we want to buy it again. Well, they were excited about buying it. I was excited about selling it. So I went and I sold them a whole new suite of life insurance policies. Um, Proper good planning term for mom and dad and whole life for the kids. Um, And I was excited about it and, and it was great. Well, Unfortunately, yet again, um, they and I had this by this point, I had a little bit more experience. I was a little more cautious, but they were demonstrating significant capacity to pay. Their business was stable. They were in a good place. And um, uh, and so I sold them policies. Well, I can't remember exactly what happened at this point, but sometime later they wound up. Um, lapsing those policies again. I think they made it through so it wasn't as expensive, but they lapsed all the policies. And I was disappointed, but I didn't worry too much about it. They'd moved out of the area and I just said, well, you know, sometimes as an insurance agent gets to you, sometimes clients don't talk to you, they lapse their stuff and they go on. That's life, that's business. Well, unfortunately, uh, I forget the exact timing, but a couple years later, their youngest son was murdered. And it was just a heartbreaking story, but their youngest son was murdered. And I was pretty distraught about it. I don't want to – the word devastated comes to mind. It's probably a little bit of an over, uh, overly charged word. But I was really disappointed and, and really upset. And, and I went through and I just thought, was there anything I could have done to um, – you know, to keep that in force. Is there anything, did I not do my job of keeping the insurance in force for them? But it's pretty devastating because I watched then the horror of watching parents deal with the murder of their young son. He was uh, six, seven years old. And I wished so much that that insurance contract had been in force because if it had been in force, it would have been so helpful to mom and dad. Now, thank God their marriage survived. Very frequently in the death of a child, when a couple experiences the death of a child, very frequently their marriage does not survive. Thank God their marriage survived. They worked through it and thank God they've had another child. Uh, And so, you know, in the end, uh, tragedy turns to triumph. But in that circumstance, I, I saw so clearly what a benefit that life insurance policy would be. Now, that's an experience I've just shared with you, the emotion of it. I put that experience up against hundreds of other child life insurance policies that I sold that the child is fine and chances are it will just be kind of a decent long-term policy and that's the nature of insurance. So once you're exposed to that business as an insurance agent, then it starts to affect your emotions and you start to see how valuable um, that is and it it changed me. That experience changed me. Travis, I give you the last word before I go on to my final caller. Sure. No, I appreciate it. That's all great advice. You answered what I need to know. I really appreciate it. 
Cool. Congratulations uh, to you and your wife on the birth of your child. Uh, I think that's fantastic. And um, you, and uh, I think you'll make good decisions. Hopefully this was helpful for you. All right. Last caller of the day, Giddish from Tennessee. Welcome to the show. How can I serve you today, please? Thank you, Joshua. You have been doing a tremendous job, and uh, I appreciate you doing this for non-patrons of the show. Uh, I have two questions, uh, and I'm aware of your views on 529 plan, but I'll, I'll give you a little bit of my background. I uh, currently have, I contribute to maximum possible for both me and my wife, 401 account. This should be a year we should be able to maximize on Roth as well, uh, have a good term and disability insurance in place. Uh, we have two daughters. One is almost three year old. One is about nine month old. And so my goal for next year is uh, start considering about 529. My education was not in this country. And so it was very customary to for parents to fund college education. And I would probably want to continue to it to an extent. Uh, I understand this is a different culture and I want them to take ownership of their education uh, so I, I haven't really figured out all the thoughts I, I would like to do, but I do know that if I want to fund some portion of it, it, this is the time to start thinking about it as far as 529 and time horizon of uh, 15, 20 years or whatnot. So what would be a good goal to, you know, in terms of amount of money, let's say, you know, if I'm thinking at least uh, half of their education, I want to help and then the rest of them I can either depending on how they do, they can take a loan out or I can help with my taxable. So uh, I know a lot of prediction involved, but what would be a good amount you would consider? And I have one more question after that. <laughs> you said you listened to my shows on 529s? Yes. I mean, I'm aware of your uh, thoughts on it, that you know your retirement should always come first, and that's what I have been focusing right, right, on. Right. Uh, and so I believe now that you know, I'll be able to fully fund whatever the pre-tax opportunities are uh, as far as uh, my retirement income goes. So I would like to think about 529 versus taxable, and I know taxable would always have more flexibility. Uh, and so I kind of feel conflicted here. You know, I come from a background where parents traditionally fund their children's education with no obligation whatsoever. This is kind of a thing that you do. Everybody does, but then now I'm in a different country where right. I also want them to have skin in the game, so to speak. You know, at right. least those are my views right now. Well, you're conflicted, <laughs> and I'm conflicted. <laughs> so let me give okay. you my my two answers. Um, if okay. if I were a financial planner, and you were mm -hmm. my client, and we were speaking strictly in a professional context. Then the way that I would answer it is everything that you said. Okay, are you on track for retirement? I would we would talk through. Do you have debt? Uh, do you have other uses of the money, et cetera? And you would say to me, No, Joshua, we're in good track. I'm well employed. I've, you know, my financials are on are on track. Then I would just say, Well, what what kind of school would you guess would be appropriate uh, for your daughters? And you would say, Well, the University of Tennessee. Uh, and, and so I would say, Well, what's the current cost of Tennessee? And you would say, I want to fund it at fifty percent. We would basically just say let's do some calculations and and put some money in that's 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 the only answer in terms of a financial planning answer um, so that's the technical answer and basically you just stick some money in and you you hope that it works out I'm conflicted because I have an ideological block on this particular topic and my ideological block is I see um, 
that college has changed and is changing. And I look at my young children, and I cannot believe that I would send my children to any mainstream college with the exception of a hard science approach, something like engineering, mathematics, um, chemistry, okay. that type of thing. Where that's about the only um, thing that I would ever send my children to. Everything else, as far as kind of just the mainstream approach to college, is just such a waste. Uh, I mean, it's an ideological swamp. Uh, and so the the only exception would for me is, okay, is there a hard science? And when I look at that and I look at about all the ways to get college for cheap, I can't imagine sending my children into kind of the traditional, hey, let's go off to, you know, for you, maybe the University of Tennessee or let's go off to the University of Florida. I mean, college these days is just such a cesspool um, that I look at it and I just can't even – I can't fathom myself ever wanting to encourage my children um, to wander into that filth. And so I have this massive ideological block around the idea of funding college. And that's what I tried to share in those shows to say, here's the technical answer. Um, that. So, so then the other thing is I look at the, the pace of change around. I look at the deep dissatisfaction that my generation has with college. I look at the data that still indicates that educational attainment has a high correlation on earning ability, lower unemployment among people who have college degrees, et cetera. But I look at how fast the market is changing technologically and I look at the impact and I'm convinced, especially since you have a three-year-old and a, and a nine-month-old. I'm convinced that in the next 15 years, the world of education is going to be turned on its head. Now, there have been there have been movements happening under the under under uh, under things, but there but these things but these movements are picking up steam, and so I think the momentum is there that in 15 years the college environment is going to be unrecognizable, and that so I have this major. There's your professional answer first, and then frankly, I have this ideological block that says I, I think the whole thing is a worthless waste of time. Okay. Okay. No, well, well, that 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 helps in a way that uh, I mean, I may, I mean, lately what I have been, I, I kind of go back and forth, but lately I have been leaning, uh, yes, I may be missing out on some uh, tax-free growth, but taxable is what would give me the best flexibility as far as use of money goes, uh, whether it is unfold need of me, my wife, or my kids, you know. Or whether it would require, I, if you would have asked me 10 years ago whether I would move this, to this country, I would have said no, and I'm here now, and I plan to stay here, and who would know what would happen, you know, by the time they would be of college age. So maybe maybe that is what I would do. The second question I have, and I know this is probably uh, something that you would point me in the right direction, but that is what I'm looking for here. When I, I, I'm originally from India, and in India, there is a big uh, whole life uh, insurance market with uh, Life Insurance Corporation, which is backed by Government of India Security. So it's very solid. I do have a substantial amount of uh, different type of whole life insurance policy there, which I do contribute. I'm on a second year, and up to three years, they have no cash values. Uh, my main concerns with those are uh, I'm very, uh, with, with financial regulation being tightened up, when I got it, uh, Nobody was ever tracking what happens and how it goes, and I was not aware of that. But with increasing financial scrutiny, and I know how, how fi whole life insurance taxable thing works over here, I need some direction to find out answers about 
uh, how do I need to report this if I do need to report whole life uh, insurance policy? I did look up IRS website and initially said, well, your all your foreign account, if it has collective of $10,000 or more, including surrender value of your care, whole life policy needs to be reported. Well, I'm not in that territory, but I would be there in a year or two. And uh, I try to ask around here in town to see if any particular CPA would have background dealing with something like this. And it, I ended up, everybody offers their service, but they don't necessarily have background or expertise that would make me feel comfortable with their answer. So any, uh, I don't know if you are aware or if you have any direction where I can find the appropriate resource uh, to think what to do with this. So let me make sure I understand the uh, situation. You own a whole life insurance contract that is slowly accumulating cash value. And it's an Indian contract that you purchased while you were in India from an Indian-based life insurance company company. You've now moved to the United States. And are you a citizen or are you on track to become a citizen of the U.S.? Um, the latter part. Okay. So you expect to become a citizen of the U.S. And as a U.S. citizen in time, well, as a U.S. citizen, you're now going to be subject to the full range of IRS regulation. And because the IRS requires for U.S. citizens the reporting of foreign Foreignly, foreign-held financial assets, you're trying to figure out if you need to report the value of your Indian whole life insurance contract to the IRS on the appropriate forms? Is that an accurate summary? Uh, yes. And also, if it would make uh, – the reason I got this whole life policy because there were a whole lot of taxable benefit if I would have stayed in India. Uh, the you know incentives were good, tax-free, et cetera, et cetera. But I don't know if uh, me staying in U.S., uh, whether my whole life policy would be treated from India would be treated in the same way as if those whole life policy would be one that I obtained in U.S. And so I also want to see that at some point, would it make uh, sense to just surrender it for simplification? And then maybe it would not be treated in a tax advantage fashion in U.S. And, you know, actually I would be uh, better off investing that money. Anyway, I do make a sizable contribution every year on those. So, right. What an interesting question. Huh. <laughs> so, do you have other accounts in India or other aspects of your financial life that continues to be in India? Yes. Well, I do have NRE account, which uh, I had to open essentially to fund this policy. Uh, but that's pretty much it. And you intend to be in the United States. The best you can discern your intention now Correct. is to be a long-term resident of the United States? Correct. Okay. Well, do you think – do you continue to believe that this life insurance policy that you own is a good and valuable asset for you? Or at this point, do you look at it and say, well, not really? I think it's a good and valuable asset, uh, but a huge unknown is how uh, the earnings on it will be treated when it would start paying off, and that's a huge uncertainty. You know, if it would be treated in a way that whole life policy earning would be, then it absolutely does make sense to me. If it doesn't, and it would just put me up on the radar for IRS audit, then it probably does not. Uh, I uh, so that that's the unknown for me, like how this policy would earning from the policy would be treated uh, here in the United States. 
So here's the best consideration that I can give you. It is an interesting and complicated question, but here's the best analysis that I could give you. I would start okay. with the question of, is this uh, a valuable asset? Um, okay. just kind of, cause, cause there's no point in your, if you have an asset that stinks and it's just a piece of junk, you made a bad investment, uh, then mm -hmm. under that context, you cut your losses and, and sell it and move on and find something better to do with the money. If it's, if it's a valuable asset though, then you want to consider, then, then there's no reason to rock the boat. Uh, so my first question, is this a valuable asset? Second part of that kind of a corollary is, is this a valuable asset given my changing tax situation? And that's kind of probably the key thing because you've, you purchased it Correct. planning to be governed by Indian tax law, but now you're governed by US American tax law. And so the, the attributes of that may cha have changed. You're, you're subject to a Correct. different system. So the attributes of that have changed. So I would ask that question, and and that may be useful to you to uh, to analyze. Let's say that for sake of just numbers that are inaccurate, but but useful to the conversation. Let's say you were previously looking at it and saying, I was going to get what would be the equivalent of a ten percent annual rate of return on my asset. That would be great, uh, but that was a ten percent uh, effective return net of taxes because of the tax value of the contract. But now I'm actually getting a zero percent rate of return. Well, in that context, dump the dump the investment and move on to something else where you can at least get a better return. And so that tax consideration will be substantial. With regard to the IRS, I, I'm not scared of um, foreign reporting requirements. I think I hate them okay. in terms of ideologically, I hate them. I don't see what business the IRS has with you and your money, but I am in the minority and I'm just basically a, a clanging gong in, gong in the street. Uh, for some reason, the U.S. you know voting base thinks that the IRS is God and deserves to know about every minute detail of your financial life. So um, I hate it, but I'm not scared of it. The reality is that there are these requirements that if you hold foreign assets, you are required to report them. But I haven't heard any evidence or any even allegations. Maybe they're out there. I haven't looked, but I haven't heard any evidence or allegation that holding foreign assets would be a risk. Uh, and I recommend to people frequently that they internationally diversify their assets. I think it's a good idea. Uh, I get uncomfortable with the idea of having all of my assets in one country. And now we have to be practical about this. Um, there's no reason for somebody who is just getting started and has no money to worry about opening a Swiss bank account. But as your wealth grows and as your assets grow, I think it's imprudent to keep all of your assets under one particular country, under under one particular tax entity. Now, I think there's an appropriate and prudent way to engage in international diversification. And unfortunately for U.S. citizens, the price of entry is to file your F, your FBAR forms, your, your um, report of foreign bank and financial accounts, your FBAR forms every year with what you have. So I'm not scared of filing it. And I wouldn't dump the policy just because I now have to file the FBAR form. I would actually look yep. at your having assets in India as a useful part of your overall financial life. Um, the most natural way for you to, to diversify your holdings internationally is to invest and keep assets in a financial system that you know 
where you other where you have contacts. I would guess you have family, friends, etc. And so for you, the most natural way for you to have that international diversification would still be to maintain a simple, a simple but not insubstantial financial life in India, even though you're planning to be a long-term resident of the United States. Okay, very good. And so for that uh, second question, uh, how change in the, uh, or current change in the tax situation of affects you know what uh, effective rate of return would be uh, who can you know i have tried to call irs helpline i uh, reached out the agent i have in india but both of them have very limited knowledge about what is pertinent in their part of world without the other part of world and so i want somebody who can uh, take who has an interest and can come up with a solid advice on you know this is what your policy looks like, this is the current tax system looks like, and this is what it means when we connect two dots. Where do I start? Because local, one or two local CPAs I reached out to, uh, of course, they, you know, they are willing to provide services, but when I ask them, have you done, uh, not necessarily for somebody living in India, but this type of work before, they were not able to give me any reference or so forth. So I don't know whom can I ask that question or what type of resources I can reach out so that I can answer that question for myself. I doubt the person exists. If they did exist, the only place I could imagine them existing would be somebody who is servicing the mega wealthy um, Indian American uh, community. And I mean mega wealthy. There may be somebody who has established a boutique uh, accounting and and financial advice practice, and they work with uh, the mega wealthy. But in terms of just a rank and file person, I I, I doubt they exist. And so, frankly, you're going to be the best person to do it. Here, here's how I'd approach it: Don't be scared okay. of the the government officials. Uh, don't be scared of okay. the IRS. Um, the IRS, if you call the IRS, they're not going to have a clue about the answer. And they're especially not going to have a clue about the answer of anybody that's going to be sitting on a phone bank. There may be some highly advanced um, person in the IRS organization, but um, but but nobody sitting on a phone bank is going to be able to help you. And your local revenue agent is not going to be have. They're going to be nice about it, but they just don't know. That's a very specialized question. What I would do if I were you, do your best to read around as you've done, and then just ask yourself the question. Okay. Based upon my reading of this, as a reasonable person who is desiring to comply with the law, as I understand it to be, what do I think is the answer? And whatever you need okay. to do, go with that. Because here's practically okay. the situation. The IRS is going to have no knowledge of your assets in India with the exception of what you actually file with them in the the forms. There is no international um, uh, tracking of every dollar. And so they're going to have no knowledge of your assets except for what you file with them. The workings of a life insurance contract especially are opaque to the banking industry. It's unlike a, 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 a retirement account, for example. The assets that you have in a retirement account are sent off to the IRS every year. But a life insurance contract doesn't have that connection. And my guess is that the life insurance contract doesn't have that connection in India. So this is an asset that is opaque to the governing government author authorities until or unless something is done. In, in the United States, whole life insurance contracts, growth on the value is not reported. It's not reportable in any way. That's one of the benefits of a whole life insurance contract. So I think okay. the only the only um, 
burden or responsibility that's on you is to say, as a prudent person, what's the, my best guess at this? What's my best approach? And chances are you'll never have any interaction with the IRS. Um, the audit rate for people with the IRS is minute. It, I think it's – if memory is right, it's under 1% of returns uh, I think that are ever audited. And most of those audits, if, if, my, if my memory is right, are kind of automated letters back and forth. You'll never sit down with a revenue agent who has any knowledge of – uh, of Indian tax law, uh, and it's just it's in it's inconceivable. Now, if you are some kind of magical um, uh, criminal underlord or sorry overlord, and you've you've earned four billion dollars in rupees last year, and now you're trying to figure out well how do I hide the money? Well, now you might wind up in tax court and have to do it. But I think you're um, you're 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 giving the IRS and the Indian version of the IRS far more credit. There's this. This is going to be irrelevant for you. For you, just do your best okay. as a prudent, honest person, so you can sit before the revenue agent. And you can say, "Here's what I'm doing. I'm reporting it on these forms as you specified here. Here are the situation, and uh, and I think that's the best that they can expect. I mean, you didn't set out to to create these complicated laws. They did, and the best that that anybody can expect is for you to do your best honestly, uprightly to read the law and do your best to follow it. Uh, everything beyond that is is um, is not worth worrying about. Okay. All right. Well, that uh, helps. Uh, I'll keep you posted on that. Thank you. <laughs> it is an interesting question, and I have found uh, I've found a number of those interesting kind of expatriate solutions. There is a, a business opportunity, I'm convinced, a business opportunity especially in the current world uh, where it's much easier to target your listeners. But if you have an interest in accounting or an interest in financial advice, and if you have an ethnic background uh, or uh, an experience, if you're an Indian uh, Indian American or Ameri- American Indian, <laughs> whichever way, if you have this connection in cross-border in cross, uh, uh, knowledge. You can become an expert in both and you can do a ton of business with people who cross that line. And remember, you, for most of these kinds of practices, you don't need that many customers. But many people who are expatriates from another country maintain a financial life in both. Um, I remember a professor of mine in college uh, was from... Uh, one of the small countries in Africa, I forget which one, but he didn't invest in the United States. He worked in the United States, but all of his investments were at home. He built out computer uh, internet cafes and, and he had his friends and his family run them, but he made great returns on his money, but it was all invested back home. And whether it's Canadian uh, and U.S. citizens uh, who are living in the United States or in Canada and crossing the border and all of that, that's obviously a huge market. Or if it's Rwandan uh, people from Rwanda and the United States, you can target these these tiny little um, kind of expatriate communities very effectively with the Internet. And there are a lot of people um, like Gadish who would have these kinds of questions that you could serve effectively. So there's a business idea for you if you're into that. I think that's a pretty cool little um, option. And if you're into travel, especially if you're part of that community, if you are Indian American, then I think you have a really powerful way where you can set up uh, an identity, uh, a business identity in both countries, and you have an entirely plausible uh, business to run that involves you going back and forth, seeing your family in your home country and also in your country of residence. You have a, a really efficient way that you could set that up. So anyway, that's one idea. One thing I thought of one of my backup plans i share it with you <laughs> i have a boring ethnic history so i'm just a boring old u.s american but you never know maybe i'll move to india someday i'll be back with you all soon
This show is part of the Radical Life Media Network of podcasts and resources. Find out more at RadicalLifeMedia.com.